a giant donut-shaped object covered in canvas that would rub the skin off of your arms, fastened to a 50-foot rope towed behind the family bay liner. Some people call it inner tubing. Some people call it the reason for health and life insurance. But the Kennedy boys and most other teenagers and people that are under 21 called it fun. There's just something awe-inspiring about driving a boat in a circle five times, watching walls of water assemble themselves until they get five or six feet high, and then pulling innocent women and children through the muck and the mire and seeing what happens on the other side. There's just something adventurous about using a boat and a float to, to, to launch and slingshot people as human projectiles. My brother and I really liked this form of, of torture. We would ride two across on the tube, and one of us would attempt to make the other one laugh and fall off, and sometimes we'd work together and try to position the weight on the float just right so we could hit the perfect wave, and uh, we wouldn't remember what would happen next. In 2002, we had a blast. We headed to Old Hickory Lake, and we went to our favorite tubing spot for a routine summer outing. We tried out a new tube that allowed you to ride two people in one tube side by side, sitting just sitting down Indian style. While sitting in the tube between jumps, we were discussing uh, what we were going to do next when the boat took off. And when the boat takes off, uh, usually there's slack in the rope and you kind of have to idle until you pick up this slack and then you can, you can floor it. I knew this ritual was coming, but my brother, who was talking to me at the time, did not know that it was coming. And there's a small jolt, but he wasn't ready for it. And slack came out of the rope, the tube swung around, and I began to get ready for uh, uh, taking off. And then I realized that my brother was screaming his head off next to me, and I, I thought he was being a little dramatic like he always was. He's the baby of the family, and, and well, you know, babies do that. Until I turned toward him and I saw really, really, really dark blood flowing out of his nose. We quickly pulled him into the boat. We laid him out. Dad floored it back to the dock a few minutes away. And Stephen began to lose consciousness. While Dad drove, I would keep his eyes open. I would, I would talk to him on, on, uh, on the floor of the boat, trying to get over the sound of the motor. And that quit working after a while. I'd never really dwelt on dying much in my life. I was 17 years old. But that moment, I began to question whether or not my brother would live. Good evening. I'd like to, before we go the rest of the way, plug the plan from the beginning. It is our uh, 2012 reading material. And if you want to delve into that, it is available out at Information Central. It's available at a few of the entrances in the building. And it is available on the pew right beside you. If it's not available on the end of the pew where you are, it may be on the other side. So make sure you pick up a copy of this. It has notes, summaries of readings, a section for your own notes, and a few places where you can use this as a tool. It fits in your Bible to delve into God's Word in 2012 and be spiritually formed because of that. We'll be absorbing Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians tonight, uh, chapter 3. It's around page 1048, 1049. If you've got a pew Bible in front of you, 
And I know that I had a different text in the bulletin and I was going to do Revelation, but uh, I'm changing it up. In the spirit of Christmas, just forgive me, please, and we'll move past this. I love the images presented in 1 Thessalonians. They are very pastoral. The relationship that Paul had with this church comes out in this letter. The letter depicts Paul's, uh, an apostle's close relationship to, uh, unto those to whom he ministered. The relationship was filled with care. Paul compared this relationship uh, to this church as that of a mother taking care of her own children in chapter 2 and verse 7. And then later on in chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul compares his relationship with his church to a father lovingly encouraging and exhorting his children along. He and others had shared not only the gospel, but their whole life, their very lives with this church in chapter 2 and verse 8. But later on, Paul had been torn away from this church, as we see in the letter. Hindered by Satan. We pick up in chapter 2, verse 17, and I'm going to read... 2.17 to about 3.5, and we're going to take a look at that text really quick tonight. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see you, uh, to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain." Paul found himself in a present state of anxiety, of worry. And he was worried about the, the faith of the church in Thessalonica. He was worried and he was wondering whether or not the church there in Thessalonica would live. We finally made it back to the dock and we had 911 on the phone and we waited for several minutes and finally the ambulance arrived The paramedics calmly put my brother on a board and into the ambulance, and I hopped in for the ride. We rode to Nashville about 20 or 30 minutes away, and we got Stephen into a hospital that was prepared to handle this type of situation, and I just sat there. I was worried. I was in shock. I was not in total panic, but I was not exactly okay. I still couldn't believe that this was happening to me. We arrived at the hospital, and they put him in the ER, and I sat there, and I waited some more, wondering what would happen in the next hour. And your brain can become extremely creative when someone that you love is, is uh, in, a, in a situation where there's so many variables to their life, you just don't know. And that's what mine began to do. What if he doesn't make it? What if the worst happens? 
I waited longer, and I filled in more blanks and more blanks. I wanted so badly just to talk to my brother or somebody that would give me an answer about my brother. I just wanted things to be normal again. But all I could do was wait. Paul had reached a point during his time away from the Thessalonians where he could no longer bear the lack of news. No news is good news, they say. Well, not according to Paul. He sends Timothy back to check in on this church, to bring back some kind of report. Imagine the things that just go through Paul's mind at this moment, the blanks that he could fill out. He had been torn away from this church he dearly loved, out of contact with them for quite some time, like a mother stripped of her child and then left alone to imagine what would, what's going to happen to her baby, like a father anxiously awaiting the arrival of a long-lost son. Paul had invested sweat and toil and labor into this church. He had invested heavily in the people of Thessalonica. He had preached the gospel for free, while, while suffering trials and working day and night to pick up the financial slack, Paul had become like a parent to these people in their faith. Paul must have waited and paced and worried like he was sitting in the room of an ER or like a mother and a father waits and paces and worries when it's past curfew and their teenage son or daughter, their shadow has not darkened the door. Paul wanted face-to-face contact, but all he could do was wait. The next face that I saw was not my brother's, but it was a more than welcome face. It was Brian Manning, who's now my brother-in-law. and At the time, he was the summer youth intern at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. He showed up with a calming presence, and he showed up with food, which was really good to me at that time. He sat and talked, and my mind had less time to fill in the blanks. And I couldn't believe that he had shown up so quickly. How could he have known about something like this? Brian waited with me till the news came that my brother was going to be fine. His concussion presented some complications, but he was stable now, and I was in a point where I could go see him. And I was so glad when I heard the news. And I was so glad that Brian was with me. Around this time, a few more friends from the Mount Juliet Church of Christ showed up, and then a few more, and then a few more. How could so many people show up at the drop of a hat? They encouraged me. They calmed me. They embraced me. As a 17-year-old who had never really encountered this before, I found myself in a different state of shock. I found myself beginning to wrap my head around what it meant to be a part of church. The text, uh, the verses that we're going to read next in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 to me, take the cake. And there's something so small, but it's so significant in here. We'll almost miss it if we breeze by it. Let's go to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians and read verses 6 through 8 where we had just left off. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Isn't that crazy? What comforted Paul on that day in the midst of of the types of afflictions and trials that an apostle would face was not Jesus Christ himself. It was not the Lord or an angel in a vision. It was not the absence 
of trials and pain and the presence of comfort. It was the faith of fellow church members. Look at how he phrases it in verse 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. That verse is loaded and I'll tell you why. We tend to live in a world today where there is a separation between church and faith. Not church and state. That's a whole other matter that I don't want to talk about really. But church and faith. In other words, the trend nowadays seems to be people having a deeply rooted spirituality in God but not necessarily deeply rooted ties in a local church. Hear me out on this one. That is not biblical. It might be trendy at best, but it is definitely not biblical. Paul takes this interdependency between believers and the body of Christ to a whole new level. He and other people, apostles at that, lived on the condition that the church in Thessalonica remained steadfast. It may sound a little over the top when he phrases it like that, but I can guarantee you that at its weakest, that statement was Paul saying, hey, your steadfastness and your faithfulness affects other people, not just you, yourselves, and your families. It affects the lives of apostles who are the very ones who brought you to faith. At its weakest, a statement like that says, church is important. It matters. And I somewhat held this separation of church and faith uh, early in my walk with Christ, I had grown up in church. I had gone to church. I had loved church. At times I had hated church. I had played church. I had visited other churches. And I thought I had mastered this thing called church growing up in the, in the Bible Belt South. But the day I almost lost a family member was the day that I began to understand church. Before I saw the church in, act, in, in action during a crisis in my life. I had some misconceptions. I knew the plan of salvation. I knew a ton of Bible content. And I really never thought that I had to have church as an essential part of my life, as a part of living, or else I would die if I was not a part of it. Before that incident, I knew church was important. But it was kind of a social thing. It was kind of a a good southern staple like sweet tea or, or blue jeans. It was just something that existed if you were in the south. And yeah, it was bad if you missed church, but I couldn't really tell you why it was so bad. You just missed some singing and some preaching and, and uh, 15 minutes of announcements, and then someone could just fill you in later on that. Oh, the phase of understanding I went through before I understood what the church really was. That day, I saw the church show up in the ER. I was not comforted by a worship service or, or the melody line of a song or a sermon or a quiet hour of Bible reading. I was encouraged by the faith of fellow members of the body of Christ. And so many times a church can get, can get mixed up or appear too much like other groups. And these, these groups are, are great and they're good for social interaction and they're good for the human soul. But they are not the church and therefore Christians can't turn to them as their source of fellowship and living. These groups may be good or bad. And they are as follows. Within the group are Within the world are groups people are born into, and these groups attend your birthdays and your graduations, your wedding, and eventually they'll be there at your funeral and things in between. They love you and they embarrass you. This group is called your family. 
There are groups you are initiated into and they teach you and train you to be like one of them. And if, and if you're good, then you belong and you're accepted and they move you up onto bigger and better things. They give you security and power and acceptance. And these groups are called gangs. There are groups that teach you and instruct you and they have great patience with you. They grade you and they guide you in the ways of wisdom. They help you transition into the real world. Well, some of them do. They're called schools. There are groups that look and think and act just like you and they offer social benefits and they, and they offer connections that empower and they offer safety and comfort and the opportunity to escape from the other awkward situations that you don't want to be in. Those pe- from the people who are different than you, they're called cliques. And then there's that group that is in the world but is not of the world. Where you belong not on your own credentials, but on the credentials of grace through faith. And people are closer than blood. And people say to themselves, uh, no, I won't do this. Instead, I will live for the interest of others. And they treat others as they want to be treated. And they're filled with love, the perfect love, like 1 John describes, that casts out all fear and anxiety. They are able to do all of this not because of themselves, but because of the life, sacrificial death, resurrection, and word of Jesus Christ. They disagree. They hurt. They have struggles, but they comfort one another with the comfort of the Lord. They are strengthened by the Lord, and in turn, they can strengthen each other. They accept, they discipline, they edify. This is called church. And Christians do not exist apart from it like they do not exist apart from Jesus Christ himself. Church is not a a southern staple like sweet tea or blue jeans. It's the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. A holy people once dead in their sins, reeking of rotten grave clothes, lying dormant with no purpose but to lead a pointless life for the self. A holy people who were once dead until they died again. This time they died to themselves and they were immersed in a grave and they rose to newness of life and now they don't live for themselves. They live for the new self that is a purposeful part of the body of Christ. Can we be minimalistic in our, in our involvement with the church? Can we live a life of faith all by ourselves? Can we cut a finger off the body of Christ and seriously expect it to live and thrive and be all by itself? How do the limbs of the physical body live? They live when the heart pumps blood into them. They live when the lungs supply steady oxygen and the stomach breaks down food and nutrients and ships it to the cells by means of of the blood and the veins and the nervous system and all kinds of other things working together. How do parts of the physical body live? They live when other parts of the physical body are remaining steadfast at doing their job. How do members of the body of Christ live? They live when other members of the body of Christ are steadfast in doing their job. 1 Thessalonians 3.8 says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. When we do not train up our children in the way of the Lord, it only, 
It not only hurts them, it not only hurts the family system that is, a, that is in that household, it hurts the body of Christ. When we become slack in fellowship with our believers and our brothers and sisters in Christ, it not only hurts us spiritually, it hurts the whole body of Christ when we hold on with a death grip to our secret sins that we think, hey, this doesn't affect anybody else, it doesn't matter, no one will know. It not only crushes us, it kills the body of Christ But that coin has two sides. When we teach our children to be steadfast in the ways of the Lord, it not only benefits them for their whole future and the whole family, it benefits the body of Christ. When we place priority upon doing things and staying involved with the local church, however it may look, we bring comfort not only to ourselves, but to the body of Christ. When we focus upon God's grace and His Spirit that dwells within us, and we begin to eradicate the secret sins in our life, it not only makes our life better and livable and meaning and full of purpose, it builds up the body of Christ. I'm not here tonight to put rules on church attendance and levels of involvement. That leads to to minimalism. It leads to to legalism. But I think one thing we can learn from Paul's simple sentence tonight is that we're more dependent upon each other in Christ than we think we are. You have the chance today not only to ask God for eternal life, you also have the chance to comfort the lives of hundreds of people around you with your faith People encouraged Paul, not by doing miracles for an apostle. They just, they just showed Paul their faith. And Paul was built up. An apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Built up just by seeing the faith of other people. I'm glad you're here this evening. That's not just a cliche. I'm really glad that you're here. Indeed, I live if you were steadfast in the Lord. Indeed, we live if you were steadfast in in the work of the Lord. If there is a way that you need to come back to God's family, or you are not a part of God's family, there is a way to make that right tonight. And you will not only better your own life, you will not only allow God to save your own life, you will build up the body of Christ. You have a tremendous opportunity to come forward tonight and let us support you, treat you as the member of our own body with care and respect. Not living until you're whole. Living because you're living and thriving. If you need anything from the church tonight, from the body of Christ that sits with you tonight, won't you please come as we stand and sing.